Today we're reading from John uh, chapter 18 from verse 12 through to verse 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what, I was, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. All right. Well, good morning, KV. Um, it is always a pleasure to be with you. Um, we are again in John's Gospel. If you missed last week, we've picked this series back up. Um, you might be interested to know that this series began before my family moved to St. Andrews, and it may well be continuing after we leave. I don't know. Uh, it's the interminable John's Gospel, uh, to which we go and return once and once again. Uh, thank you, Gregor, for reading. I think maybe we should start a YouTube channel of men with beards reading the Bible. And just, um, it doesn't have to be men, men and women with beards reading the Bible. Um, and that would be just the beard is the criteria for Bible reading. And that would be its own entertaining shtick. And uh, I think we could make that work. We could go several weeks with the, with the beards in the church. And maybe, maybe we could convince Jim to join us finally. Um, now this week we continue uh, in to build towards Jesus's death with the story of Peter's betrayal and that's uh, how this is typically framed um, and what's interesting to me when I reread this passage these past weeks was to notice how Peter's betrayal 
is interwoven with the audience that Jesus has with Annas. Uh, and I suspect that there is actually more than one denial happening in this passage. So to get us into this, I want to begin with some general observations about what is an unusually dramatic passage. And by dramatic, I don't mean full of drama, but that this passage, unlike most, looks a lot like stage directions. Um, so it's a passage of high description, and it's got some vivid uh, things going on, and there's blocking and dialogue and stage setting. Uh, just consider the, the large cast of characters that are here. We've got Peter, we've got another disciple who we typically think is John uh, in this. We've got Jesus, we've got Annas, we've got Caiaphas offstage. We've got a soldier, we've got a gate guard, we've got questioners, we've got the slave girl, the crowd, and then the slave of the high priest. This is a large cast of characters for a pretty dense passage in these moments. Um, we've also got some moments of high description. Now it's not in this, it's, it's, it, it precedes this in John 13, 30, where John tells us that, and it was night. And we don't usually get told in the Bible like what time of day it was for these things. And, and it was night is a pretty clear description. Um, and so it's dark and everything is shrouded and shadowed. And then we get, which is just lovely, is in verse uh, 18 of the passage that Gregor read for us, um, we get this description of the charcoal fire. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, not just a fire, a charcoal fire, uh, something the smell of which you will be familiar with, right? Uh, and that there's embers and glowing. It's, it's um, you can, it's very, it's very, uh, you can sense it in some ways for it was cold and they were warming themselves and peter also was with them standing and warming himself so we have these very vivid set pieces nighttime and the charcoal fire and then we get some blocking um we've got uh jesus in front of annas and then we've got peter following jesus and we've got peter's kind of uh, interesting entry into the courtyard and we get people who is standing in different places and then we get the strike to jesus's face so so um We've got nighttime around a charcoal fire and the crackle of embers and the chill of the night. And on one part, we have a friend in trouble. And in another part, we have a companion who's confused. And that's the setup for this passage. Now, if this were a proper stage production, you would doubtless put the two events side by side uh, and you'd work back and forth between them, maybe to the left. Um, you'd have Jesus under these interrogation lights to have a spotlight on Jesus. Um, and the high priests and their people around him in shadow, they'd be less clear. Um, and the soldiers moving around. And on the right-hand side, you have Peter and his companions around a dimly lit fire. So the light would be coming from the fire. Um, and maybe between them, you'd have some kind of gate or division and maybe a sight line between Jesus and Peter as a way to do this. Now, the point of describing this is not to argue that John was a, was a dramatist masquerading as a gospel author. Uh, the point is to observe that, that John is perhaps the most literary of the Gospels, and this may be one of his most literary passages. He's just, he's, he's showing his, his literary skill, he's created an image. But even more importantly, it suggests that this dramatic situation encapsulates a dramatic parallelism between Annas and Peter. Uh, and there's a more central parallelism between their denials. We're supposed to see them both denying Jesus somehow side by side. So consider, um, more specifically, there's a crowd outside with Peter and there's a crowd inside around Jesus. There's two crowds. Um, in the one situation with Jesus, things done in public are discussed in private, right? 
So the public ministry of Jesus is talked about in a private secluded space. In the other half of this, uh, around, around Jesus, there's people in private are trying to dissociate themselves from the public. So Peter's trying to dissociate himself from public witness um, is the, the, what's going on. Uh, we've got the reference to Peter's sword striking the high priest servant's ear. And then we have the soldiers striking Jesus on the face. The word's not the same word in Greek, but we have these, these uh, both descriptions of really clear violence to the face in both cases. And then really importantly, in both cases, verbal testimony plays the decisive role. It's verbal testimony. So Jesus appeals to the testimony of what he did openly, and Peter denies the verbal testimony of his firemates. They've got verbal testimony against him. He denies it. There's verbal testimony about Jesus, and Annas denies it. Um, and so this collection of comparisons suggests that both Peter and Annas deny Jesus, and the denials are parallel, and we're supposed to read them that way. So let's consider each of them for just a moment. Annas's denial um, looks like this. He denies the testimony of the public witness of Jesus, of what Jesus had been doing publicly. Jesus's daytime deeds, uh, the things done in the open, in the light, in when it was not night, um, the crowds, the people who heard him, the miracles, uh, the people who can walk and see and are no longer lepers, these things are all out in the open. Uh, they, they were not hidden. In fact, the very reason for Annas's secrecy is um, the night. So we've got this nighttime arrest and the, the, the shady legality of what they do with Jesus. The reason for these things is because of his fear of the crowds. Now, what Annas and the other powers wanted to do, they wanted to do away with Jesus. They couldn't do openly because they were afraid of the people who were with Jesus, who had believed this testimony. And so we get to consider again um, verses like John 18, 19 to 21, which is in the middle of this, where Jesus responds. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. Everything's been out in the open. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. It wasn't like private house parties. It wasn't like secret clubs where we did our stuff, where all the Jews came together. Not some, but all. It was an open, um, it was an open secret in that sense. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, Jesus's uh, response is, I mean, it's clever because it points to the fact that, see, you're doing this in secret, Annas, because you already know the answer. You already know. It's open. Um, and Jesus kind of puts him on the spot, but he reveals the problem. Uh, Jesus has been open, public, transparent. Annas must operate in, higher, in secrecy because what he's doing is wrong. And so Annas's denial of that public testimony appears to me to be rooted in power. He denies the testimony of the crowds and their testimony to Jesus because what they stand for threatens his security. Um, this, in a sense, is a, is a threat to the status quo. It's a threat to priestly power, uh, to prestige, to authority. Um, Annas very likely has a hope for a national Israel under spiritual leadership, and he is well positioned to be part of the leading community when they gain power in these moments. And if Jesus is right, then those hopes are being threatened. If you've invested your whole life in something, like the achieving of a certain goal, and you've cast your entire personality in that, then a threat to that goal is quite scary. It's a scary threat to who you are. You know, I should point out, this is also a threat to Annas' idea of God. Annas has really clear ideas about how God works in the world. He's, he's an expert in the scriptures. He's read the Bible. He knows what to say. Um, at least he thinks he knows how God should work in the world. 
But if it's true that Jesus is God's prophet, then there's a chance that he doesn't know God. If you represent God, then I'm wrong about God. And that's a very threatening thing as well. And so Jesus is rattling Annas's idea of God. Um, I find personally that people who are threatened by God's power in this way and God's authority often have their ideas of power confused with their ideas of God. And their logic goes something like this. Uh, God loves me and I love this thing. Therefore, God loves this thing, right? Um, where the thing I love gets confused with what God approves. Um, God loves me and I love my power. Therefore, God loves my power, right? Uh, God loves me and I love money. Therefore, God wants me to be rich. Uh, it's a very easy way for us to slip into these things. God loves me and I love this relationship. Therefore, God approves of this relationship, right? And so we, we paint God's approval to the things that we love and we choose. But testimony about Jesus, the public testimony of Jesus, rattles our sense of uh, the status quo. And it's discomforting. So there's Annas' denial. But let's come to Peter's, which I think may be a little different than how we typically think of it. Typically. Uh, we interpret. Uh, Peter was scared of the crowds, of what might happen to Jesus, of death and suffering itself. So Peter denies Jesus to save his own skin. And this is, of course, possible. And so by, I'm going to take a different tack, but I'm not denying that this is, this is entirely possible. But I, on my reading, especially in this passage, I think that Peter's denial looks more like it's rooted in a kind of comfort or a kind of complacency. So let me explain. It's possible that the testimony of these witnesses who come to Peter, aren't you his disciple? Don't you know him? Weren't you with him in the garden? Because there's three witnesses, right, who come to testify to Peter that you know Jesus, right? They hit Peter at a moment of not outright rejection of his Lord, but of kind of a neglect, even a self-obsession. Um, I read this story and I hear Peter really just wanting to be left alone with his thoughts. I've got no time to talk about Jesus. I'm busy thinking about Jesus. And he wants to turn inward and focus just on himself in this moment. And these things are interruptions that are keeping him from, from his attention. He's focused on Jesus. I think he is. I can't imagine him not being focused on Jesus. He's inside the courtyard, outside the place where he's being examined. He's, his, whole, his whole mind is occupied with Jesus this moment. It's just that when people ask questions about him, they came as interruptions. And so Jesus is saying things like, Peter's saying, please don't ask me about him. I'm worried. Shut up. I'm thinking. I don't know him, leave me alone right now. And so in the very act of putting people off so as to better think about Jesus, Peter denies Jesus. And I can't imagine him denying Jesus outright. I can imagine, or for me, I can't imagine denying Jesus outright, but I can imagine being so self-obsessed with my own thoughts that I deny him in this way. And suddenly Peter's denial begins to look a lot more like something that we can do quite easily. So, We've got twin denials. One of them is based on power. The other one that's based on a kind of complacency or self-obsession. Now, whether the issue for us is power or complacency, testimony about Jesus is the thing that rattles us. It's testimony that hits us um, and makes us deny or be, be followers. The witness of the crowds, the witness of uh, the, the fire companions, and these things are create the circumstances for denial. Let me put it quite clearly. We believe or deny Jesus on the basis of testimony. Um, and I think we mean this in two ways. We believe or deny Jesus based on the testimony of this book, the testimony that stretches back through time. We believe or deny Jesus based on the testimony that he, he rose from the dead on the third day. 
uh, and that the eyewitnesses who saw it uh, told faithful stories about that. That's a testimony being passed on to us. And we believe or deny based on that open testimony. In fact, John's gospel itself is cast as an entire testimony. When Jesus appears to Thomas in John 20, uh, he doesn't appear to Thomas, right? He appears to the, to the 10, and then Thomas isn't there. And then Thomas doesn't believe for a week. And then a week later, Jesus shows up and says, here, look at me, Thomas. And then Thomas finally believes. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, this is one of the moments where John, uh, it, he's, the words are in Jesus's mouth, but John is speaking to you, the reader. Blessed is Thomas because he got to see Jesus and believe. Blessed are they, you readers of my gospel, who have not seen and yet believed. You believed on the basis of testimony, and this gives you a blessing. The whole thing is testimony. So that's one way that we believe or deny Jesus. We, we accept or deny the testimony. But the second way is the Petrine way. How do our lives reflect or deny the life of Jesus? Because our lives are also a testimony. Peter's life, his, his existence with Jesus as a follower, as a Galilean, as someone who'd been in the garden, he also tacitly testified to who Jesus was. And he denied that testimony when it came to others recognizing the Jesus in him. And I think, again, it was because of a, a complacency. So these testimonies expose our fears and weaknesses. Uh, we may resist them because they rattle our sense of the status quo or because they draw us out of our complacency. Um, I'm afraid I don't have much happy things to say at this point. Um, we're going to reflect more on what these things mean. And I might, I might have some, I might have like a small boon to offer you, but I, I, I got a passage that's grim. And so we get to have grim thoughts this morning. That's okay. It's a little, oh no, the sun's out. Sorry. Um, it was cloudy. Now the sun's out. So deal with it. Um, let's take a moment and let's think more about these twin denials. And let's just reflect for ourselves what Anna's denial looks like and what Petran denial looks like. Um, and how does the testimony of Jesus, first of all, rattle our sense of the status quo? Well, if we're going to examine ourselves relative to kind of um, an Annas denial, then I think the question you want to start with is this. Annas interviews Jesus in secret. Where are you tempted to pull Jesus aside because his public witness is too difficult to bear? Where are you tempted to go secret because the open stuff is just too obvious and you don't like it? Um, I can think of a few things, and I'm going to name them, and uh, some of these will make some of you uncomfortable. Jesus is very clear that we don't get to hold grudges. We have to forgive. We have to forgive because we've been forgiven, and a condition of you being forgiven is that you extend forgiveness to other people. Are you tempted to pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, this person doesn't deserve it. No, this is wrong. And in the secret moments of your heart, you want to condemn and judge someone for the stuff they've done to you. But you don't get to hold grudges. It's open secret. Everybody knows it. We're condemned by it. Uh, what, about, what about a place like your ambition? Uh, you want to pull Jesus aside because you want to work people in situations to your advantage. Jesus, I've got this dream. I've got this vision, these things I want to do. And it, it, these people are in my way. Can't you, can't you do away with them for me? Uh, this little ethical hiccup, Jesus, it doesn't matter that much because look at the good I can do with it. I mean, granted, Jesus, I have to lie a little bit to make this money, but when I've made it, think about all the things I can do for you. And we want to pull Jesus aside and we want to edit his witness because it fits our ambition. 
Jesus rattles our status quo. The ends do not justify the means. We have to be pure in all that we do. Uh, it's almost too easy to pick at money and say, we, we put our trust in money. And, and Jesus says, hey, I've, I've seen your bank accounts and I've got plans. And you say, but yeah, but Jesus, I've got plans too. Uh, can you please do something about my plans before you look at your plans? But we know. We know that, that he's a co-signer on all of our bills, on every purchase we make. And that rattles us, I think. And perhaps just more generally, it's our, our easiest habit is to paint our pet sins with God's approval, or at least to try and paint over the eyes of God so that he won't look at our pet sins, like our bitternesses, our gossip, what we do in our sex lives, how we treat one another, stuff we just don't want God to see. Each of these are an Anna-style denial because the public testimony of Jesus rattles the status quo. And if we admit Jesus is right, we have to change. We don't want to. That's Anna's denial. What does Petrine denial look like? Where does, the, where does the testimony of Jesus call us out of our complacency? Well, if I'm right, Peter's denial is rooted in wanting to be left alone. Where do you want Jesus to leave you alone? Where do you want to be quiet and by your own little fire where no one can bother you and where little voices start to interrupt you and ask you questions and you just want them to shut up so you can be alone. Um, I imagine, especially at a time like this, our home life is one of these places. I can't be bothered to be a good Christian at home. This is where I can let my hair down and be myself. But you have all the more obligation to be a good Christian at home, not even a good Christian, just to be faithful at home. Because little eyes and little ears and your families and friends and people around you are watching. And they know that you, they know or should know that you claim Jesus. And they know if when you get home, you don't look like it very much. What about your work life? Does anyone um, recognize you as a Christian like they recognize Peter? Are you invisible? I don't mean you have to like, I don't know, find like Christian clothes and wear like, have like fish tattoos in the backs of your hands and maybe like, like a really, really big cross to wear around your neck. Um, we've got to do these things. I, 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 don't, I don't know what that would look like. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being flagrant um, in these things. But, but does, do people know that you follow Jesus like the crowd are on the fire knew Peter followed Jesus? I think that's a worthy question. Where if they had a question, they'd know how to ask you. They'd know who to ask or what to do. Um, are you recognizable? Maybe more precisely is where are you tempted to turn your back on the Lord because it's inconvenient to your desire for a moment's peace? Uh, and I find that a troublesome question. Um, I do think there's some hope at the end of this. And this is the, here's the boon I'll offer you. I think it's a good boon. And I was reminded this morning of, of, of course, the story of Peter um, walking on the water with Jesus, right? Um, he sees Jesus coming to them, walking on the water himself, showing his lordship over, over chaos and over all the powers of evil. And Peter says, I don't know why he says that. He says, Lord, if it's you, have me come out and walk with you. That's a weird thing to say, right? If it's you, I want to try to, maybe that's not so weird. If it's you, I want to try too. If my kids see me do something, they want to try it too. And so he hops out and Jesus says, come on. And he hops out and walks on the water. And he's great so long as his eyes are on Jesus. 
But the moment he looks away, he starts looking at his circumstances of the storm and the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. And I think um, our denials um, are rooted in not having our eyes sufficiently on Jesus. Um, Annas is looking at what he might lose if he follows Jesus, but he's not really looking at Jesus. And Peter's looking at himself and he's not really looking at Jesus. But the more we look at Jesus, the more these denials and the potential for them just fades away. So this morning, if you are in a place where um, one of these things has convicted you, the point is not to make you feel bad. The point is to say, hey, let's get our eyes fixed more closely on Jesus. Let's look at him because you know what he does to Peter? He reaches out and takes him by the hand. And I think that's what he wants to do with us too. So let's pray together and then uh, let's worship some more. And in those moments of worship, let's, um, let's listen to where maybe we've denied our Lord and let's uh, fix our eyes on him and reach our hands out. So if you bow your heads with me, let's pray. Lord, I, um, you know that I, I don't sit in front of this congregation as someone who's never denied you. You know that I've denied you many times in both the Annas ways and the Petra Peter ways. And that I need your grace more and more every day um, so that I can allow you to, to rattle my status quo and I can allow you to call me out of my complacency. And I pray that you will do that for each and every one of us. Um, I think I want to pray right now, Lord, that there, there are some and many of us maybe who feel like our, our vision of you is obscured, like there are, there are clouds between us and you. There are ways that we just simply can't see you. And maybe we've been looking, but we don't. And, and I pray that you would make yourself known, that the clouds would, would dissipate. Um, that there would be a clear sight, not that everything would go away, but that we would see you and know you and that we would be grasped by the hand and carried along. In whatever our circumstances might be, however clear or however stormy, help us to fix our eyes on you and make you always our Lord. And these things I ask in the name of Jesus for this, our congregation today. Amen.